0: Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Judge Business Debate. My name is Michael Kitson and I'm an economist here at Judge Business School in Cambridge. In this series, specialists from the Cambridge Judge Business School and the wider Cambridge community discuss and debate topical issues of business and management. In today's session we are focusing on how to navigate office politics, or so perhaps how not to get involved in office politics. Although this is a subject I know little about, I know that office politics has a bad name and can be often be very destructive. Given this, how could companies organise themselves and what should workers do to yield the best possible results and the best possible working environment? So today to discuss this important topic of office politics, I've got three guests. First Professor Mark Durand, Professor of Organisational Ethnography and a Fellow of Darwin College here in Cambridge. Dr. Philip Stiles, University Senior Lecturer in Corporate Governance and the Co-Director of the Centre for International Human Resource Management, again at Cambridge, and Simon Stockley, Senior Faculty in Management Practice. So, welcome to the three guests today from the Business School. Perhaps to be useful to kick off, we've got this general term, office politics, and we generally think office politics is a bad thing. But what is it, um, Philip? Could you tell us something what you think office politics involves?
1: I think office politics is a is a very broad term, and I think probably goes back to the issue about what are organizations for so in some in some views organizations are economic institutions and they are about rational interests but many people think that actually organizations are political institutions and actually they serve to serve to promote groups interests against each other and the strongest group will will win so in that case in if that's to be believed then one would think that office politics is almost like an irreducible element in organisations. Now, can it be good and can it be bad? And the answer to that, I guess, is of course both are possible. So in some senses office politics are good if you want to advance your interests and also maybe advance your own career. On the other side, office politics can be very bad if there is, for example, cases of harassment or bullying or or where people to feel as part of an out-group. So In a way, office politics is a generic term which could possibly encompass both good and bad, but certainly it goes to the heart of what organizations are.
0: Could it ever be good for an organization as opposed to the individual?
1: I think some people might feel that actually office politics may promote competition between people and therefore competition may drive performance. That's a very strong view in certain places. Other organizations now seem to be moving against that by saying that actually the competition drives other kind of more unwelcome behaviors. Um, particularly, again, about uh, status and demeaning people and marginalising people. So there's a lot of... It depends about this, I think, Michael.
0: Mark, what do you think? Is it, do you agree with Philip's um, analysis?
1: I, I do, actually. Um,
2: I usually agree with Philip. Um, <laughs> I think there is, there is a very big downside to office politics, or maybe not necessarily office politics, but the suspicion of office politics, and I think it is the effect it has on people's ability or likelihood of self-censoring right mm-hmm. so if i suspect that all of the politics play a big role in our organization i'm much less likely to tell you what i really think at certain moments in time and sometimes that is because i worry about the consequences sometimes it's because i think i have good reasons not to you know i, I don't want to cause embarrassment mm-hmm. i I'm new here and because I'm new here, you know, uh, if I speak too quickly, I might be worked out by some sort of internal immune system. It, it, you know, it might be because it's such a competitive place, partly as a result of it being fueled by office politics, that whenever I speak out, no one listens anyway. So, you know, all people are doing their reloading. You know, that's, you know. You're
0: talking generically here rather than the institution we are in at the moment. Bed, well,
2: I, I, you know, hey, listen, to be fair, I don't think games is great at this, frankly, right? But, but, but I think we're trying, right, which is, and including within the school, to create spaces and God, I hope this is true, create spaces where you and I find it a little bit easier to say, listen, Philip, can I give you a bit of feedback on something you said yesterday? Are you okay with that? Or to say, you know, Michael, listen, the podcast, you know, the way you introduced this, that was powerful stuff, you know. (laughs) You know, it need not be critical, you know. And my real fear is that either office politics or suspicion thereof will inhibit people and causing them to self censor more and more often. And the end result is... That people in the organization won't know all they need to know to move the organization forward. And that worries me aside from the fact that it becomes a dismal place to work.
0: Okay, we'll come back to some of those important issues I think that you've raised there. But, but Simon, what's your, what's your take on, on this?
3: I, I very much agree with what Philip was saying about competition in, in organizations. And um, I mean, my, my natural domain is, is technology entrepreneurship. And we've seen numerous examples of um, where, where sort of competitive sort of intra-organizational teams was set up on a competitive basis. I mean, w- one of the famous cases, of course, was Steve Jobs at Apple. More recently, um, Elizabeth Holmes, who by all accounts worshipped Steve, um, was doing exactly the same thing at Theranos. You know, we, we know what the outcome was there. So uh, it needn't necessarily always be a bad thing but, but certainly um, some of the practices in, in rapidly scaling technology ventures can can be really quite harmful.
0: So, How, how do we balance that then? Because certainly in this university is a big stress on collaboration and mm. collegiality. I mean, how do you stress the benefits of collaboration with, say, perhaps you might need, also need some competition as well? It's a difficult one to,
3: to deal with. It, it, it certainly is. And I mean, I, I think it, it really does, you know, the devil is in the detail. It, depend, it really depends on the context. Um, but I, one, one of the things, again, that we see repeatedly in these very, very rapidly growing startups is what a tremendous increase in power does to the founding team. And you get all manner of dysfunctional behaviors creeping out. Um, case in point, I think, was, was Travis Kalnick at Uber. Um, who was really fought, you know, fought, forced to resign as, as chair of the organisation.
2: If I may tr- try a response, right, to the same question, mm-hmm. uh, appreciating everything you've said, right, and the examples you've highlighted, Simon, are, are, are very powerful examples, right? Um, but in response to the question, well, how do, you, how do you find that sweet spot, you know, where you want people to collaborate, but at the same time you also not want to weed out competition? Um, I would imagine that... W- one way of working this surely must be to try and maintain a level of transparency throughout. You know, transparency can fuel competition, but I think at the end of the day, because there's transparency, it will leave people feeling with a sense of its fair game. I think by and large, if you look at organizations, including the judge, you know, you've got people that are here because they're individually very good. And they're individually very good, I think in part because they've always been competitive. I think that's true of all of us around the table, you know. You can't help being who you are. You know, if you're forced into a situation where you're encouraged to collaborate, that part of you that wants to compete will never disappear. Mm. And I think what I mean by transparency is the type of environment where it's okay to own up to the fact that we are competitive people, trying to collaborate towards an end that we all agree is important. And we can either do that by taking the mickey, you know, or as they do in sporting environments, you know, finding a way of people who you know, who are innately competitive to somehow have a bit of fun competing, but in such a way that it won't actually derail the overall project, you know. Uh, of course, what you can do in sporting environments uh, or indeed in the military, you can't necessarily do it a judge, you know, or other organizations because the social contract is different. But anything we can do to promote transparency, which I would say is almost the antithesis to politics. I think politics to me is about obscurity. It's not about transparency, you know. Um, and in the way that Philip suggested, as you did, Simon, that this obscurity that goes along with politics can fuel competition, I don't disagree with you. But I don't think you need obscurity for that. I think transparency can fuel competition in the same way, if not more powerfully.
1: Mm, yeah, Philip? I, I agree with that. I think and when you see some of the problems in organizations generally, <coughs> it's... it's, it's, it's generally about lack of transparency. Also, I guess, just to throw another thought into that about lack of consistency. And, you know, I think in, in research around leadership and teams and workforces generally, the idea of the in-group and the out-group. And this is a very, very well-known set of issues. And, and often leaders drift into creating an out-group by, by default. So they won't mean to do that, but they'll just gather people around them who are very similar to them or they're expert in some ways to them. And in a way, that's a forgivable thing. And I think once the the leader is more aware of that, then they'll bring it back and they'll be more transparent and more consistent. I think what is damaging is where you have a deliberate sense where people are marginalised and they feel cut out of the loop and they feel that they're being briefed against. And I think then you get what you know what Mark talked about, you know you start to get a sort of toxic culture in the organisation. And this is where organisations start to become very bad. And I think, I suppose, one, one, one distinction may be useful here is about, you know, between acts and omissions. So I think a lot of what goes on in organisations is by omission. Things just happen. People just lose track of things. People don't take enough care. They use the wrong language sometimes. There's mistakes made. I think there's, that's, we can accept that. But I think where, where you have people who set out to be deliberately non-transparent or deliberately tough or in a way that they know will actually affect people in a, in a kind of malign way, um, that's where the politics stuff becomes very, very damaging, I think.
3: And, the, and the, these people do exist.
1: Very much so. Yeah, very much. So. But
3: before
0: we get onto those people, mm. I mean, just perhaps we deal with the out group first. I mean, if you're if you're in the out group, what do you do? And that picks up, I think, what Mark was talking about, sort of the difficulty of voicing concerns. Presumably, that's yeah. particularly if you're in the out group. I mean, if you're in the out group,
1: what yeah. do you do? I think I think two things. <laughs> um, one is one is you can you can try and see what the conditions are for the in group, and try and get yourself into the in group. Um, this sounds like school, doesn't it? It is like I think the playground is not a not a hugely uh, doesn't do the, the phenomena a disservice actually. Um, so you can try to and you see a lot of that, that you know so the finding out what the boss likes, what sort of music do they like, what sort of cricket team do they support, going up and you know that kind of politics stuff. The other side of course is to wait is to bide your time and wait for the chief exec or the boss or whoever it is to kind of make a make a mistake. And then suddenly the out-group becomes the in-group, then you're very well placed. Neither seems very desirable to me. Neither seems very desirable at all. And, and you know, you think of the, the loss of energy that that sort of behavior gives in, you know, so the, the non-productive side of that. So you know, part of your working day is given over to trying to calculate, am I in the right group? am I in the wrong group? How can I maneuver myself? How can I maybe I mean, Simon will talk about this later. How how can I be slightly more Machiavellian to get my myself better placed? You know, it's a huge I mean some would say that's a huge waste of energy. Other people would say that actually that's all there is to um organizational life. But depends who you depends who you read. Simon, you've
0: got you've got issues about the sort of dark side of leadership, I think.
3: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. The, 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 there is something called the, the the dark triad of um three closely related Psychological states, I think we could call them. They're not necessarily disorders, um, although some of them do, do crop up in the diagnostic manual. Um, so, so the dark triad is uh, psychopathy. Um, and I think it's estimated that roughly 5% of CEOs mm. have psychotic tendencies. Um, that's probably best understood in terms of a lack of empathy for others. Um, not necessarily deliberately wanting to hurt people, but actually not caring if you do. There's narcissism, which would be extreme self-love. Um, and, and finally, Machiavellianism, or b- being extremely manipulative. And these are often found together in, in the same individual. And potentially that makes them an extremely dangerous character. Um, and again, depending on who you, you read, the best advice with people like that is just to avoid them because you're not going to beat them.
0: It, just a, I'm an orders of magnitude sort of person. I mean, is it common to have those three traits? Apart, apart from sort of major leaders of, of, uh, uh, <laughs> of major countries, um, but apart from that, I mean, are these common in other organisations?
3: I've, I've worked with two, two people who were absolutely unambiguously... Sort of dark triad personality types. Um, one of the defining features, I think, is that they tend to be extremely charming to their superiors. So very, very good at managing impressions and flattering um, people in more senior positions. But they're also very, very good at punching down. So the pe- people who are on the same level in, in a hierarchy, or more particularly, their subordinates get demeaned and humiliated and uh, pushed about quite a lot by these people. And and
0: and you're suggesting we can't do anything about really these sorts of leaders. Mark, do you think we can do? I anything? Th-
2: I think I think we can. And actually, what I'm going to say next is 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 a probably very poor adaptation of a wonderful set of books. Um, the first version of which was called um, "The No Asshole Rule." Um, and the more recent incarnation of that is called the Asshole Survival Guide, right? So, um, so one thing, um, very practical would be just to, um, to look at a silver lining, you know. Um, that sounds very Machiavellian, but saying, listen, I can sit this out, this too will pass. And you know, what's a silver lining here? You know, at the end of the day, not all is bad, you know. And the silver lining justify. You know, or help me through what might be rough next two years. I think that's one. It's a very practical option. I think the other one would be a slightly more benign one, where you say, well, what is making someone be the person that he or she happens to be? You know, uh, there may be there may be very good reasons why people are what they are, and they may be what they are temporarily rather than permanently. So these are not people necessarily suffering the three sort of dark, sort of the the three dark characteristics that Simon outlined, um, which I agree with wholeheartedly, but these are people that are just going through a tough time, and they can't help being what they are. And let's cut them some slack, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I think finally, you know, you might just decide to try and find ways to work around people. You know, if, if people are reasonably good at what they do, you know, and I can think of a number of examples, there might actually be ways. We can creatively work around people. You make them a consultant to a team rather than a member of a team, for example. Or you invent a department for them. And I've seen this happen firsthand. You invent a department for them where they're put in charge of a small unit where the toxicity is contained, but it, it doesn't feel like a humiliation for them. You know, So there are things we can do that are relatively practical. None of them will be perfect, no doubt. But it's not all as a lost cause, right?
1: Um, Philip. I think... One one thing maybe not to underestimate is how attractive some of these people can be and even attractive to Attractive to to their colleagues and attractive to the bosses. So I mean, there's a reason why these people become chief executives. It's not It's not I mean if they're if they are toxic, you know, ultimately, but they have charisma as well. They have charisma They are mostly extroverted. They are they have huge personal energy people are attracted to them, even though they may be bullied by them or may be humiliated by them. Nevertheless, they feel, I remember we worked with an organization where a chief exec was a bullying person and we asked people who were very senior, why did they stick around? And they said, because three years with this guy is worth six years anywhere else. You know, so you get a feel that these people are very, they have a kind of gravitational pull about them. So that's why the politics stuff is quite tricky because a lot of people, they'll put up with a lot just to be around certain kind of characters, who they feel, even though they're difficult characters, they feel they have some kind of, they want some kind of journey or some kind of path. So, so th- there's that issue. I think is what maybe just worth worth saying. And um, I think I agree with Mark. You know, I think when you look at people like this, you tend to get two versions of them. What, especially if, say, if you talk about charisma, you get what we call the individualized charismatic, who is very much the kind of Machiavellian careerist person and then you also get the socialized charismatic who is a person who is hugely again hugely powerfully attractive to many people but will will somehow corral their charisma into the service of the organization through some of the things that mark just mentioned and if you can get that then then that can be you know a very Mm -hmm. very powerful force for the organization um so so again these things are there's there's Light and shade with with these characters still, I think.
0: Mark, you mentioned something earlier about s- safe zones or safe spaces. Mm. I mean, h- how do how do we create those in an organization? So there are a number of uh, several things we can do, right? So um,
2: some of which are very very practical. So let me just outline two very briefly. So the first one is to collectively agree upon a set of behaviours and give that a name or label, right? So you might say we will draw the red line always at this point. Um, you know these behaviors are not acceptable and because we decided this in Cambridge at say the Judge business school Let's call this a judge moment a judge rule whatever it is, right? So this allows people to call behaviors out. Well remember this feels like a judge moment right mm-hmm. now right here, you know Or and this is an example from a law from Trevor's Davis from Trevor Smith we worked with for quite some time and this is in the public domain um, So I can talk about it where here in Cambridge. We had a session whereby uh, um you know, a, w- a woman stood up at one point when she wasn't comfortable and said, well, that's not cool, to one of her colleagues. And we said, well, that's interesting. Um, how about you use the that's not cool as, as a way of calling out behaviors that seem unacceptable? And Trevor Smith, good on them, they went public and they created the hashtag that's not cool. Yeah. And so anyone at any point in time n- only needs to say that's not cool. And people know what's meant by that's, you know. I think that's number one. I think number two just very briefly, you know, there's a little exercise that we sometimes do whereby you take a sheet of paper, you create two columns on a sheet of paper, and you say, listen, I need to have a difficult conversation, I need to give someone some feedback or some information I find it difficult to convey, how about I write down in the right-hand column everything I'm willing to tell that person today, and how about in the left-hand column I write down everything I would love to tell that person, but find it really hard to say. Now I've done this many, many times, and invariably the right-hand column is skipped, people go straight with the therapeutic left-hand column, you know, writing all the stuff they would like to tell Michael. For example, but don't dare say, find it difficult to say. So once I've done this, what I would do with my call, I go to Philip and say, Philip, can you help me out? What kind of language would I need to use to try and not move all of my left and column across, but one or two bits, and make them sayable? And you come up with the most interesting examples, right? So let me just give you one very, very quick one. Um, Matthew Fleming of the Fleming family, he, uh, he used to play cricket f- for Cambridge and subsequently for England. And this is a wonderful story. This is many years ago where he was out uh, playing cricket um, out in India in a one-day test match. And he was already out in the field warming up and his captain had to tell him he wasn't going to play that day. And so his captain had to figure out how to break that bad news and move it from the left and column to the right-hand column. So the captain went up to Matthew and said, Matthew, I don't know what we would do without you. I have no idea. But we're going to try. <laughs> it may sound facetious, but it's really clever. Because what it shows is that sometimes language can be very, very helpful. And so Philip might help me out saying, Mark, if you tried this? Or Philip might give you some perspective. I was in a similar situation a few years ago. Here's what happened, right? So these are tiny little kind of devices people can use to try and create around themselves spaces where it's just a little bit easier to say, Simon, there's something I've got to tell you. I find it difficult to say to you, but here's what I'm telling you.
0: But that's a difficult skill for people to have, isn't it? I mean, that's a great communication skill. But, but therein
2: lies the good yeah. news. The good news is people are so piss poor at this (laughs) that you don't have to be perfect to make a massive positive difference, you know. And dare I say, Cambridge is not the best example of a psychologically safe space. I have to say, though, I think within the judge, we're not doing too bad. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's, I've noticed, I'm a new boy, I've only been here for seven years. (laughs) Um, I've noticed an improvement Mm. in that time, certainly in the last couple of years. When um, you know you can try something, you can even fail at, at a particular task, and you're given feedback, um, encouraged not to fail in the same way twice. But uh, you know, so we we actually do practice what we preach, which I think is encouraging.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's right, and I think I think what you see again, what we see in other organisations is is. Um, you know about the, the presence of certain norms in an organisation about what we what we will tolerate and what we will not tolerate and i think for in in many organisations those norms are fairly fixed and hard to shift but you know from what simon was saying and mark was saying you know you, there are possibilities to to move them you know you if you make people aware of, of the norms and where maybe they be def, they might be deficient then I think you've got a chance of, of moving them forward. But if there's not a psychologically safe sp- space for people to raise this, then you're kind of stuck with the same old, same old um, culture. So I think, you know, a lot, of, a lot of this, you know, the safe space issue. So, for example, um, you know, does the organisation have a charter? Are there certain behaviours that we, you know, as Mark was saying, are there certain behaviours that we will tolerate, won't tolerate? Um, and maybe more at the informal level, what's the, what are the stories that we tell about how people are treated in this place that still are here, even though they may have happened 10, 12 years ago, they still have a resonance down the line. Um, and maybe we should start to look at some of the stories people are telling in this place. Not, not judge, but you know, generally. Um, and what are you know, are they perpetuating political behavior in the malign sense? Or actually are they encouraging of this? Um, I mean, for example, quick example. Um there was a a big bank um recently, their chief exec instituted a whistleblowing policy. And which is obviously a good thing, and that's a nice norm to set for the organization and uh you know it gives us sort of safe space and so on and everything else. And um and then the first person to blow the whistle under the new regime, um, the chief exec it happened the whistle was being blown on a colleague or a friend of the chief execs on the board. And the chief executive, of course, saw this, and then the first thing he did was to try and investigate who blew the whistle. And when the board was reluctant to sanction this, um, they hired a team of private investigators. The, the chief exec hired a team of private investigators to to find out who blew the whistle. You know, and so so the norm of safe space was established in the beginning, and then the first behavior that you see, of course, completely undermines it. And so you have this this kind of formal rhetoric about how we should treat people and underneath the story is there which says actually this is what we should pay attention
0: to. so it's very difficult to change organizational culture
1: yeah i think it is but not impossible no not impossible it takes
0: time presumably as well
1: it takes time but in in a way you could say you could you could change that culture maybe in in a day by for argument's sake taking the chief exec out let's say i mean you can change things that will make a huge difference um
0: you mean sacking him rather than any other way of taking him out, presumably? Yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, not in... Not in, not in that wouldn't sense. set a
0: very good precedent for organisational <laughs> cultural change. I you know.
1: wasn't advocating violence. <laughs> no, no, right, no, you know, no, no, no. no. That's for the record, <laughs> no, no, no.
0: <laughs> but just getting back to Marx, words and art, way you articulate things are, are very important, basically. Yeah, yeah, I think so.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, I think so, yeah.
0: could, could I just ask something, and um, I think perhaps i come to Simon first on this, about the um, how office politics may change by sorts of economic activity you're engaged in because you do a lot of work as you said in high-tech entrepreneurship mm. uh, and small ventures you may have the issue of founder syndrome you may have the p- challenges of transition to scale up and so on absolutely i mean it, it, are these <clears throat> real important issues in in growing i mean we, 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 we're in a, we're in a high-tech cluster here and we mm. talk about um, you know, mm. the, the Cambridge phenomenon and the ecosystem and whatever. Very rarely we talk about these sorts of issues. I mean, are these issues apparent when you're studying high tech entrepreneurship and they're, high technology they're, businesses? They're, they're
3: in incredibly apparent. Um, so, and if, if we look at the data on the failure of high potential new ventures, and it's quite consistent over over many studies, about two thirds of the failures can be traced to the team falling apart in one shape or another. So it's, and usually that reflects a lack of alignment among founding team members. And that could be deciding who gets what share of equity, um, whether or not you're going to grow the business aggressively using external equity risk finance, grow it organically. Um, It could be conflict over who has which role for example. Um, and then later on, of course, the composition of the team is almost certain to need to change as, 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 as the organisation scales up. So the skills you need to, to, to start something and, and go through the exploratory phase, get something off the ground, they're very different skills to those required to run a big, mature organisation. Um, and there is a you know famous old saying: "In order to grow, the founder must go,", go. <laughs> yeah. which is I think it's, it's it's well well put. Mm, mm, mm.
0: Philip, you do a lot of work on on team building. I mean, um, what's your insights here? Yeah, I
1: mean, I I, I agree with Simon. I think the um, the sense of in, take founder led firms or family led firms. You know the rate of the rate of attrition in in family led firms is, is is well known, and very few. Family firms get to second generation or third generation at all, and again, I think for all the reasons Simon just mentioned that that's 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 true I, I mean at a more kind of granular level when you see in family firms the um, the succession process and the political issues around that I mean we were working with a firm not far from here and the 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 father is is the chief exec and he has two sons and one daughter and that the eldest son is going to become the new chief executive even though even though when we did in all the interviews in the organization the daughter is by far the best candidate and she knows that they all know that but he's going to the eldest son is going to win out and you know she's going to go into another organization and have a nice you know outstanding career there I'm sure but um you know even that very granular level this you know things aren't Aren't done objectively in many cases, and you know, given I can't remember the statistic, but given how many, say, family firms are, you know, the percentage of those firms in the in the in the um, in the ecology is, is a very high percentage, and, and it just there's a great deal of kind of unfairness about about organisations, and that that little example may show that. Yeah,
0: yeah, Mark. Mark, any insights from from your work? I mean, you've done lots of work on sort of high performance teams in high pressure environments from. Mm elite sports people to um, people working in war zones and so on, well, what's your insights from that?
2: I think the insights will be very similar to I think what Simon and Philip have already said, right? Um, it is, in some some sense it is the, uh, the adverse reactions people have to anything that smells like politics and yet the difficulty of keeping politics out of their own lives because they are co-generators of it, you know? Um, and again, you know, I think that is expressed in some ways as the sort of obscuring rather than the making more transparent that goes on. I mean, I was struck by your story, Philip, just now about the family firm, right? You know, there may be reasons why the, the eldest son, you know, should have a shot at the top job, but the reasons are obscure because it's complex. Um, and in some ways, some of the real reasons or the most powerful drivers just cannot be made public. Or you know, who knows? We're speculating, but because of the obscurity, we tend to assume it's it's office politics as usual. Um, I, I'm also reminded of something that I thought was quite insightful, which is a project that Google carried out a few years back called the Aristotle Project. You know, and if you want to find out more about it, just Google it. You'll find it, including the methodology. Um, but what I wanted to find out is what makes for the perfect team inside Google. This involved two years of work, 180 teams inside Google. And what I found is very interesting. Okay? And I need to make sure that I remember this correctly. Number one, they found out that the most effective teams at Google are rarely ever made up of the best people, which is interesting. But that's not nearly as important as, as the next finding, which is that the most effective teams at Google may not be made up of the best people, but these are teams that are psychologically safe, which means that they are relatively free of politics. And they're relatively transparent in these environments where it's okay for anyone to say to anyone else, um, "That's not cool." Right? Or have you thought about the following? Or uh, can I give you a bit of feedback on something you did a week ago or just now? You know, where people have adult adult conversations. You see what surprises me? I think about a lot of work we do with, whether they be family firms or banks or whatever organizations they are, or in your case, Simon, um, you know, high tech entrepreneurial businesses. It is the inability of people like us to have grown-up conversations with people like us. Mm. You know, people don't talk. They talk they'll talk shop. They don't talk about some of the stuff that actually matters. Mm. Instead, we take it home or we pan it off as just another bit of office politics that makes life miserable. Mm. I think if we we were to rediscover the art of talking um, and talking openly and freely, and allowing other people to do so, I think we would end up in a world that's much less miserable, you know, than it is today. I think what doesn't help and I'll end here, okay. For what it's worth, okay. What doesn't help is that the role models we have in political life today are, are not particularly good, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at the people in charge of the United States, Britain, Turkey, Ukraine, Poland, you name it, you have people that tend to be very abrasive. I dare say not necessarily particularly bright, certainly not very wise, but people that beyond everything else help normalize a style of leadership mm. and a way of having conversations or not having them that I think a lot of people be tempted to take their cues from if they can get away with it. If that's the language being used in the House of Commons, well, why can't I? Mm. That is so destructive. Mm. You know, we're better than that, you know. Mm. And that worries me a little bit. You know, I don't think we have fantastic role models at the national or even international level. You know? So we might just have to seek those out locally.
0: We are running out of time. I know people have got to get back to the lecture theatres and, and other places. But to, to pick up on, on, on Mark's point, I, mean, I think, try and think in a positive note. I mean, I think, Mark, um, you're, you're arguing that if we want to make life less miserable, we should talk more uh, and talk better. But... Um, put that to, to Philip and Simon what what would your one key thing that you would recommend to make an organization a better place and perhaps hopefully a good place and at the very best less miserable place for people to work in what would you suggest
1: well I mean first I, I'd echo everything Mark just said um, I, I suppose I suppose the difficulty we have is there's a tension between two things one is getting on and also getting along right those two things and I think to get along we need to you know to be friendly and to you know reduce office politics but given given human nature people want to get on and and for, for many people that do you mean, do you
0: mean get on career wise career wise right, yeah
1: and i think for many people that involves a kind of almost zero sum game and some people have to win and some people have to lose and i think this is where the the politics becomes very uh, tan, you know salient and and and, impo- and and important and i think that's why it, it tends to exist and a lot of people think that actually the key to, to career success is about networking and that necessarily involves a kind of lack of transparency uh, a kind of you know a kind of hidden set of paths for people to follow and favoritism and benefaction and all sorts of things so I suppose so I suppose my, 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 my thought would be that politics are kind of you, you can't eliminate them because people will always want to get on however I think um, maybe my answer to a better life for this for this kind of particular subject would be that, you know, that the main problem with politics, I think, is about hierarchy and status differences. And I think if we can eliminate status differences as far as possible, have a f- flatter structure to think you can't eliminate structure, but a flatter structure, more transparency, like the tech firms do. Um, I know that's not possible for every organisation, but I think then we're hitting at some... I suppose, big pillars of of what's possible to have a better sort of organisation, I think. Simon, Mm. to
0: make life less miserable?
3: (laughs) I think for leaders to reflect on the fact that it's their job to create meaning and purpose um, and and to have some semblance of alignment within Mm organisations and and just to to recognise that actually everyone is on, on the same team. Good. I think what we've picked up is that although office
0: politics may be considered to be trivial, but it's a very important part of many people's lives. And to try and improve people's qualities of life, we need to try and address this important issue. But well, we have run out of time. Uh, I'd like to thank the guests today, Professor Mark Durand, Dr. Philip Stiles and Simon Stockley. I thank to all three of you. Uh, and thanks for joining us. And I hope you can join us next time.